You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. It was providential that we read this morning that Abraham said he was an alien and a stranger. Well, <laughs> I don't have any property either. So, um, <clears throat> Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 37. We won't read the whole psalm, we'll just read the first six verses, which will serve as the text for this morning's sermon. Hear now God's word. It's found on page 563. Sorry. Do not fret because of evil men, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither, like green plants. They will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the new day sun. Let's pray. Lord, as we come now into your presence We pray that you would speak to us through your word. Give us ears, dear Lord, to hear your voice. To that end, dear Lord, we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us. And that the spirit would take your word and plant it deep in our hearts. Encouraging us. Strengthening our faith that we might trust you and live for you day by day. We ask these things that we might bring you glory. Glory that you deserve and you alone. We ask it in the name of our King, Jesus. Amen. What's going to happen in 2013? Who knows? Some people think, I hope it's like last year, because that was a good year. Others say, I hope it's not like last year, because that was a bad year. I want it to be better. None of us knows what's going to happen three hours, three minutes from now, let alone what's going to happen throughout the whole coming New Year. Could be good, could be bad. We tend to look back at the last year and kind of compare things, and last year wasn't all bad. There were some good things, but there was a lot of bad things as well. Think of the shootings in Newtown just recently. Think of the war in Syria. There's a lot of evil in the world, and we see that in the news day after day. Think of the debt crisis in Greece and Spain and Portugal, the Republic of Ireland. We think of the banks and large corporations that are getting richer while the world economy teeters on the edge. wonder what's going to happen. What's 2013 going to be like? But as we think about that, we think also, how are we supposed to live as believers, as God's people? What are we supposed to do? What's our attitude supposed to be towards it all? Should it be pessimism? It's just going to be bad and get worse, and that's what our attitude should be? Or should we be optimists and think, oh, no, it's going to get better and better and everything's going to work out okay. What should be our heart's attitude as we look down into this coming year? And then what should we do? How should we order our lives so that they're pleasing to God as we look forward into this new year? As we look at this psalm, particularly verses 1 through 6, it provides us with a practical guide on how we are to look at this coming year. 
But perhaps you're saying, well, I'm not even sure that I'm a Christian. I don't, I don't know if I believe all this, so what's this got to do with me? Well, this psalm is also a call for you to put your faith in Christ, as it is for all of us as God's people to put our faith in Christ. But before we get to what psalm, this first six verses of this psalm tells us about this coming year, I want you to think back over the long history of the church since the time of Christ, over 2,000 years. How many Christians lived throughout that whole period? Millions. How many of them can you name? We think of the heroes that have come down through the history of the church. Martyrs, maybe. But most believers, we don't know who they were, what their names were, what their lives were like. That's the reality of the church of Jesus Christ. It's a nameless people of God living out their lives in simple faith in the service of their God and King. And that's what this psalm is about. It's asking us not to be heroes, but to live in faithful service to our God, day in, day out, not doing spectacular things, but doing everyday kind of things. And we'll come back to that at the close. It's this psalm calling us to three things. It first of all tells us two things we're to avoid. Then it tells us several different things that we're supposed to do. And then it provides us with a foundation for both avoiding certain things and for doing the things that we're supposed to do. The psalm does this without minimizing the immediate problems that we all face. It's not saying, oh, just ignore the realities of life and get on with things. But it's reorienting our focus, our heart attitude, getting that straight so that when we get into different situations in life, no matter what they are, we'll be pleasing to God and can serve him. It's not a matter of being callous or indifferent about those who are doing evil and the injustice that we see all around us in life and the effects of those injustices on people that are very real. Many of us suffer those injustices ourselves. But rather, it's calling us to faithful service in the midst of all of that injustice. It's not ignoring it. It's not denying it. But it's saying what our heart attitude should be in the midst of it. It doesn't call us to remain passive. There's things here for us to do, as we'll see. But it's most importantly a call to faith in God. That's what our heart's attitude should be. Plain and simple. If you don't hear anything else in the sermon, you've got it. You can go to sleep now. As we look at what's going on in the world around us today, it's easy for us to conclude that maybe chance just rules. Maybe, you know, God's not in control. We look at the the chaos that's going on around us. And it'd be easy to conclude that the more somebody despises God, it seems like the better off they have it. The more they drift away from God and his word, the more prosperous they become. It's easy to draw the conclusion that either the world is governed by chance or that 
God makes no difference in the choice between good and evil. But this psalm teaches us that the prosperity of the wicked that they seem to be enjoying is just for a time, no matter how, to, how, how great it might appear to be. <clears throat> and it's a paradox that our minds have a hard time getting around. We look at people and we think, they're godless, and yet they seem to prosper. And then we look at our own lives and we go, what about me? What's going on? Why do I suffer these things? Why do I wrestle with these matters in my life? Their lives seem to go well. They have many of the material blessings in this life. So how, how am I to understand all of that? It is to address that paradox that Psalm 37 was written. It draws our thoughts away from the present way things appear to be. To put our trust in the provision of God for this life and the final justice of God that will one day come. The passage in Psalm 37 at which we'll be looking this morning, verses 1 to 6, is about avoiding two extremes. The first is to get all worked up and depressed about all the evil that we see in the world. And the second is to become envious of all the evil that we see in the world. On the one hand, it's saying, don't go there when you just see all the evil and you just get all worked up and it's so depressing and why bother? And on the other hand, you say, wait a minute. If you can't beat them, maybe we should join them. They're godless, and yet they seem to prosper. Maybe I should pursue their way of life. And the psalm is helping us to avoid both of those options. The psalm calls us to faith in God and his gracious provision. But it calls us to a non-spectacular, simple, everyday faithfulness in life. It's an acrostic psalm in Hebrew. There are two verses for every letter of the Hebrew alphabet in this psalm. There are some exceptions to that as we go through there. But the first verse begins with the first letter of the alphabet, as does verse 2, verses 3 and 4, the second letter, and so forth through the psalm. What that shows us, that this is a complete entity giving us one message. It's a very complex piece of poetry, very beautiful piece of poetry, but it's saying one thing. And that is, trust the Lord, period. Nothing new, something what we need to be reminded about again and again. And we're not going to have time this morning to go over the whole psalm. Well, so we may merely take a look at these first six verses, which provide us with a summary of the whole psalm. And I would encourage you, this afternoon, as a good practice on the Lord's Day, to go over this psalm and see what else is said there about what God does, about what the wicked do, about what godly people are supposed to do. Throughout this psalm, those things are spelled out in more detail. And now we need to look at the three things. Two things we don't do, things we do, and what God does. First of all, the things that we're not supposed to do. The chief characteristic of Hebrew poetry is parallelism, not rhyme. Our poetry rhymes. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme at all. And this is no exception here. But it is expressed in parallel terms. Something is stated, and then basically it's repeated, but the thought is always advanced, either by contrast 
or by expansion in meaning. And we'll see that in, in different places here in this, in this psalm this morning. One thought is stated, and then it's repeated by contrast or emphasis. You can think of Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all who dwell in it. There's parallel between the earth and the world, all that it contains and those who dwell in it. It's a characteristic of Hebrew poetry. So here in Psalm 37, we have one parallelism in verse 1 and another in verse 2, which bring an emphasis to two things. First of all, these actions that we're to avoid, and secondly, the transience of the apparent prosperity of the wicked. And both of these are reiterated in verses 7 and through 10, just in case we miss the point. The psalmist wants to get that across to us. Avoid certain things because those things are just transient. They're just passing. So what are we not supposed to do? In the new, I think it's NIV that we have in the Pew Bibles, the translation says, don't fret. Actually, this word is much, much, much more than fretting. It means to burn, <laughs> literally. It's somebody that's so upset, their nose starts to, to glow. Because <laughs> in Hebrew, your anger comes out of your nose. Uh, you have a burning nose. That means you're angry in Hebrew. And that's what it's saying here. Don't get all upset when you see the wicked. Don't we do that sometimes? I think, it, there they go again. <laughs> And, you know, just why is it that those people who are so godless seem to do so well in life? And we start to just get heated. (laughs) And the Bible's saying here, don't do that. Don't get all upset about evildoers, those who practice evil things, badness. Don't get upset about them. And then it goes on and kind of expands on that and says, don't be envious of wrongdoers. And here the translator's got it right. It's being envious. We get angry at them at first, but then the tendency is to start to say, well, I wish I had what they have. I'd like that power. I could use it better than they do. If I had those things, I wouldn't, I wouldn't lack. And we start to get envious. And scripture's here calling us to avoid those things, both the anger and the envy. Avoid it. Why? Because it says they will soon wither like grass and die away like green plants. Now here in the UK, I'm seeing things stay green all year long. So that doesn't apply here. You have to understand this was written in a different area. So when there's no rain, things just dry up and blow away, literally, in Israel. And that's what it's saying here. People who seem to be prospering today are going to dry up just like the grass when it's mowed and it just dries up. The contrast here is between the eternal purposes of God and the transience of life. It's not our reckoning of time at all that is the concern here. What seems like an eternity for us when we look at the prosperity of the wicked, is but a moment in God's sight. Ultimately, those who do evil and iniquity and injustice will receive their just judgment from the Lord. Hence, we don't have to be concerned about it in this life. We can know God is going to take care of that. I don't have to be worried about it. 
doesn't mean I have to be indifferent towards it, but I don't have to spend my whole life being consumed with that because that's in God's hands. That's what the psalm is calling us to do here. The point is that the prosperity of the wicked should not trouble us because it will soon fade away and be gone, just like the grass. But this truth depends on us trusting in the provision of God because unless we're persuaded that everything which happens in the world is governed by the Lord in truth and righteousness, our hearts are going to be troubled. We see the evil and we think, what's going on? We need to be reminded that the prosperity we see around us is only transitory, even imaginary. Our focus should be elsewhere and not on the apparent prosperity of those who don't trust in Christ. We shouldn't be wanting all that this life has to offer. That's not our calling. And this is something which cuts across all classes. It's not just that the psalmist preaching to the rich here. You shouldn't want all the things of this life. Because even the poor desire what the rich have. They're bombarded with advertisements that say, you need new things, you have to have these things in life, otherwise you're not going to be happy. And we're all bombarded with that. And what the psalmist is saying here is, don't worry about those things. That's in God's hands. Let them be in God's hands. The psalmist is teaching us clearly that our perspective must be eternal, not temporal. We should neither be angered or envious of the fleeting prosperity that we see around us. We need to avoid these two extremes as we look into the coming year. We need to put them aside. But it's rather like me telling you, don't think about the color green. What did you just do? You thought about the color green. Well, if I say, don't be envious of wicked people. What, what do you do? You immediately start thinking about those wicked people and you're thinking about the things that they have and you wish you had them. Or you think about, as parents, all of us know, if you tell your children, don't do this, what is the first thing they're going to do? They're going to do exactly what you told them not to do. <laughs> they're sinful little creatures, just like all of us. And so here, too, God tells us not to do these things. and He doesn't just leave it at that. He tells us things that we are supposed to do. Because if I just say, don't do something, well, what am I supposed to do? And the psalm here spells out what we're supposed to do. In fact, it tells us seven different things that we're supposed to do in order to be pleasing to God. We see, first of all, that we're supposed to trust in the Lord in verse 3. This is really what the psalm is all about. It's a call to trust in God, to rely on him, in spite of what's going on around us. Not that the situation is going to get better or worse. It's a call to simply put our trust in him. And it's for good reason that David begins with his teaching on faith or trust in God. Because there's nothing more difficult for us than to preserve our minds and hearts in a state of tranquility and peace and reliance on God when we look around us. We either get upset about it or we want it, what we see around us. And what the psalm is saying here is, no, we need to trust in the Lord. We need to be reminded, as this psalm does, that God is the author of all good and that prosperity, in the truest sense, is to be sought by his grace alone and in him alone. It's only through him only as we place our complete confidence in him 
that the Lord will give us what we need. The emphasis on trust is like a parenthesis. We see it in verse 3, trust in the Lord. And then if you go down in the second part of verse 5, it's stated again, the exact same words, trust in the Lord. And again, this is a Hebrew poem, very complex structure, and it's, to, it's done with intent. The important thing of this psalm is to say, trust in the Lord. Rely on him. What do we generally do? Who do we generally rely on for what we need in life? Who do you rely on? Don't we generally rely on ourselves and what we do and how we order our life? What the psalm is saying here is trust in the Lord. Rely on him. The idea that's conveyed by this word is one of well-being, of security. And it's a security that results from having someone in whom to place our confidence. Not having to do it ourselves. It's hope. It's reliance on God and God's character. And his provision that this security comes from. It flows out of God's own nature. And it's so different than the pagan religions that surrounded Israel. They had very fickle gods that changed Even though they had all kinds of magic and and different ways to try to manipulate their gods, they were always in a state of anxiety. Whereas the Hebrews could say, no, our God doesn't change. He's the same. He keeps covenant forever. He's reliable, so we can put our reliance in him. And that's what the psalm is calling us to do, to say, look who your God is. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. So trust him. Put your life in his hands. Live in faith in what he will do and provide for you. We're to trust in the Lord. This is God's covenant name. It's a name by which he identifies himself as one who keeps covenant forever. No matter what the people of God do, God remains faithful. That is his chief characteristic. So we can be faithful to him. We can live in faith because he's faithful. And so we are to trust the Lord. That's the number one thing we're supposed to do. Not rocket science. Not historic, hero kind of deeds. Simple, everyday trust. Boring, you could say. But that's the message of Scripture over and over again. We need to be reminded of that. As we look into 2013, that's what we're supposed to do. Trust the Lord. It's in his hands. We can't change it anyway. But what are we supposed to go on and do more than just trust? We see there that we're to do good. This action is to be taken on our part. Action that's going to replace the anger and the envy and the attitudes that we have. We don't just sit around trusting the Lord, doing nothing. We must replace the wrong attitudes that are given in verses 1 and 2, with the proper biblical action. This word has a connotation of moral goodness, conformity to God's own nature, doing good. That's what God does. So that's what we're supposed to do. We're to engage in deeds that are good. 
But this word also implies more than just morally good, like keep God's commandments. The idea that's conveyed with this word is that it's something that's pleasant, something that's beautiful, something that creates a pleasant environment. That's what we're to be engaged in. Deeds that create that, that are beautiful, that are pleasant, that create an environment of good for ourselves and for others as well. Deeds done in conformity to God's word, deeds that are helpful to others, deeds that are pleasant and beautiful and create a pleasant environment, and deeds that promote quality in life. What are these good things that we're supposed to do? What's the passage say about that? It's frustrating. It doesn't tell us what these deeds are. We'd like to have them so we can know what we can do and be busy. But it just says do good. Do pleasant things. Do pleasing things. Things that are in accord with God's word. So we're left with a whole wide spectrum. We can be creative and innovative with how we express that goodness as we engage in various deeds. It's to affect our lives, yes, but the scriptures here don't spell it all out for us. We're just to engage in good as a reflection of God's character. How do people around us here in Dundee know that God is good if they don't see us doing that good? And so we're to do good. We're to trust him, and that trust leads us to do good. And then it goes on and say we're supposed to dwell in the land. What's that mean? To dwell is to put down roots, to make it home. And we're to dwell in the land. And in the whole Old Testament, the land was God's inheritance given to his people. He put them there. Now, we in the New Testament don't have a land in that sense. that We can all go to as believers, and that's our place. But God has put us, each of us, in a specific place. You are where you are with the people that you come in contact, not as an accident, but because God has put you there. Dwell there. That's what you're supposed to do in 2013. God's put you there for his purposes. So dwell there. Make it home. Don't always want to be someplace else. David here in a couple sermons ago said something about there's people we generally think we'd just love to be some other place, whether it's a physical place or a spiritual place, some other place where everything would be okay. And what this is saying is, no, dwell where you are. Be content where you are. God's put you there so you can be content, knowing that he's put you there for a reason. For your good, for the good of others, you don't know. But dwell there and be content as you trust in the Lord. Psalm goes on and says, and the NIV says, enjoy safe pasture. Here they got it wrong. Um, The idea that's conveyed here means to pasture as a shepherd would a flock. It's the sense of tranquility. It's used metaphorically of rulers who would provide for their people and protect protect their people. In the Old Testament, the Lord feeds his people and protects them. And that's what's meant here. 
Pasturing has to do with creating an environment where there is provision and protection, where growth can take place. That's what a shepherd does. When he shepherds sheep, he protects them, but he leads them to places where they can feed and get water. And so we're to pasture, not other people here, but faithfulness, literally, is what's said here. Steadfastness, firmness, trust, truth. It's a characteristic, again, of God. He is reliable. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. But it's also used to describe the lives of those who trust in that God. They themselves are to be reliable and faithful. And I can't think of anything that's more needed in our time. We have all of the uncertainties of postmodernism, all of the unreliability of people bent on consumerism, just concerned with themselves. If we, as the people of God, cultivated faithfulness, reliability, it would be a beacon light in our day and age. And that's what's being said here. We need to create an environment where trust can grow, where people are reliable. When we say something, we do what we say. We mean what we say. We're not trying to deceive and get our own way and those kind of things. What's being said here is we need to create an environment where trust can grow, where truth can prosper and be protected. But then it goes on. It says we must delight ourselves in the Lord. Ouch. I don't know about you, but I would like to rip that little verse out of the Bible. (laughs) I would like to delight in all kinds of stuff. But it's hard to delight in the Lord. But that's what it's saying here. Not delight in what he provides. We should do that with our salvation and all the good things that we have in life. But what's being said here is we delight in God himself. Delight to be in his presence. Do we do that? What a difference that would make in 2013 if that's our heart's desire. To just delight in who our God is. That we can come together and tell each other about how wonderful our God is. What, what he's like. What he's done in our lives. The delight of our hearts should be the Lord himself, our faithful covenant Lord. This is to be set in opposition to all of the things that the world has to offer that we can tend to be envious of or angry over. We're to be delighted in who God is, plain and simple. This takes us back to the whole idea of trusting him, relying in him. So much so that we just, he's our heart's desire. He's our heart's delight. And then we come to the conclusion of verse 5, and again, we're told to trust the Lord. It's the only remedy we have as we trust in God and see his reality take root in our lives. But then in conclusion, there's three things that God is going to do. This serves as the foundation, because we can't just stop being angry and envious. We can't just crank out all of these different things that we're supposed to do. It's all built on the fact that God is going to do things. And it's out of his gracious action that we can in turn do these things that he's calling us here to do. First of all, he's going to grant us the desires of our heart. 
lot of people misunderstand this, misunderstand it grossly. They think, oh, whatever I ask God, he's got to do. It's like a little genie. You know, you just kind of rub the lamp and boop, God has to do whatever I want him to do. If we just trust in him, then he's going to do whatever we want him to. No matter what kind of weird thing I can think up, God's got to do it. I need a new flat screen TV. So, God, you're going to give me the desires of my heart. Poop, you know. So when I go home today, there's going to be one in my you know, front, front driveway. No. The context here is that we're trusting God, that we're delighting in him. So the context says the desire of my heart is to please him. He is my delight. He is the desire of my heart. And God's going to give us that desire. We can't work that up ourselves. There's too many things in life that divert our attention, distract us. But when we seek that from him, God wants us to delight in him. And he'll give us that desire for hearts. We need to band together as God's people so that he would be the desire of our hearts. And nothing else, not growth in this church, not anything else but him and delighting in him we banded together to do that, God would grant that wish. He loves to do that. It's not just what I want, but it's rather what he wants in my life. And he's going to do it, we're told, in verse 5. It's God action, not ours. And the reference here is a bit ambiguous, but I believe from the context we can see that it's when we commit our ways to God, when we trust in him, when we delight in him, He's going to see that through. He'll give us the grace that we can do that. And then in conclusion, we're told that he will bring forth, in verse 6, he will make your righteousness shine like the dawn and your justice, the justice of your cause, like noonday sun. This is a complex construction. The words that are used, righteousness and justice, But I think what's being said here is that God will one day make everything right. Today, we're God's people. We're not looked upon as very valuable in the earth. And yet God sent his son to die for us. And one day, that will be made clean and clear so that everyone will see that we will be pronounced heirs and joint heirs with Christ so that everyone will see that. And because of that, knowing that that day is coming, we don't have to worry about things in this life right here and now and what evildoers happen to have or don't have. But we can wait in patience for that day to come. We can trust in God, as this psalm is calling us to do. There's a lot of things that, practical things, that we can do as we go through this. But I think as a congregation, if we were to pray together in our pastoral groups and when we gather together, that God would become the delight of our hearts, that we would commit all of our ways to him, whatever that is, in individual lives, in families, and as a congregation. God will grant those things for us. And in conclusion, as we look ahead to what's going to happen in this coming year, I have to admit that I've, I've, I've done what maybe some of you would think 
I shouldn't have done, but I did go see The Hobbit. And so I want to kind of close with a quote from that book. I sort of have to confess, um, not that I was in some liturgical dance group like David confessed, um, but that when my boys were very, very, very young, I started reading the, the, the whole Tolkien ring cycle to them. Um, I was making up stories, and I got bored of that. I was reading Tolkien myself, so I thought, I'm just going to read that to them. Well, they were tiny, two and, and something. And so they, they grew up on Tolkien. <clears throat> and so and this, this past seeing The Hobbit was the first time I haven't seen one of the Ring Cycle movies without my father, who died, and my two boys who were back in the States. So it was a, kind of a good news, bad news kind of an event for me. But what struck me was a quote in this film, a quote, unfortunately, that's not in the book. Um, it was added, <laughs> so it's somewhat dis- disgruntling. But in The Hobbit, Gandalf is speaking with um, Galadriel, the elf queen. And she asks him, why did you take this hobbit along with you on this adventure? And Gandalf says, Saruman believes it is only great power that can hold evil in check. But that is not what I have found. I found that it is the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. And I think that's what this psalm is teaching us. It's not heroic acts. God is asking us to be hobbits. (laughs) Insignificant little people. Just trusting him in day-to-day life. Doing small things. For him. For his glory. In faith in him. That's how he operates. That's how he will bring this world to the place he wants it to be. So may we trust in God in that way and serve him faithfully with our whole life. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.